0: Why do today what you can do tomorrow? Ever thought that? Why do today what you can do tomorrow? Put it off sounds like the name of a Russian general, doesn't it? But it's some people's character trait. Put it off. They embody that great Spanish uh, idea, manana. In the Mr. Men children's books, they would call that characteristic Mr. Procrastinate but I don't suppose many children would know what the word meant, so there isn't one called Mr. Procrastinate. Why do today what you can do tomorrow? Well, that seems to have been the thought of the people in the 6th century BC. We saw in chapter 1 that they have put it off. They had put off building a second temple in Jerusalem, despite the fact it was God's first command for them when they returned from exile in Babylon to build a temple. But the good news at the end of chapter one is that they are now back at work. They have begun to work on the house, the Lord their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. So three and a half weeks after Haggai has come on the scene and prophesied, brought the word of the Lord to them, they are back at work. Well, the diary flips forward a few weeks on the 21st day of the seventh month. So in our three and a half weeks. Further in, seven weeks after Haggai has started speaking, he now speaks at a second time, and he speaks because there is another thing that might stop the people being at work. It's the phone. They're not here on a Saturday. It stopped. Here we are, seven weeks from when Haggai arrived on the scene, he is now speaking. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, and he speaks because if getting priorities wrong can stop you from the work, then a discouraging comparison can stop you from the work too. A discouraging comparison. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. In other words, you're speaking to the whole community in Jerusalem. And there are three questions. First, ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? The exile had been 70 years. So anyone who's what? 75, 76, 77 years old, would be able to remember the temple that was built by Solomon that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Second question, how does it look to you now? But before there's any opportunity for people to answer, the third question is the answer. Does it not seem to you like nothing? Look at the outline plans. Look at the foundations laid. Look at what you're building now. Look at what's happening now and compare it to the temple that Solomon built. The temple that Solomon built, you can read a description in 1 Kings chapters 5, 6, 7 and 8. Solomon's temple was magnificent. Solomon's temple was one of splendor. How does this second one look to you? Comparison? It seems like nothing. And anyone who was of a ripe old age, the grey tops, the coffin dodgers in Judah, would be able to remember. Some commentators think that the older people in the community wouldn't be able to remember, but in my experience, old people remember things from ways back very well indeed. A few years ago, Joe's father celebrated his 90th birthday. He had a party, a lunch party, invited lots of friends to it. And after lunch, he decided he was going to give a speech. And he looked back to his youth as a child. He was a farmer, he was brought up on a farm, and he remembers his dad buying their first ever tractor. And he started to describe it. And he described it in very good detail. In fact, in such good detail, we were about a quarter of an hour into the speech as he was continuing to tell us about the first tractor his father had ever bought. And we thought if he goes through the whole of his 90 years at this rate, we'll be here for 90 years. And what struck me was about Joe's father at his birthday parties. He could remember with crystal clearness, 85 years before, it was what he had had for breakfast he couldn't remember. He couldn't remember the immediate, he could remember the past And people would have remembered what Solomon's temple looked like. Does it not seem to you like nothing? But notice that little contrast word in verse 4, but now be strong, is clear. I think that therefore this comparison could be discouraging. Here are the people hard at work. But Ezra tells us, while some were hard at work, the grey tops were weeping because things with this second temple were just not as big. And the discouraging comparison might make people think, well, maybe it's not, maybe God isn't as with us now. Maybe he's not blessing us or going to bless us as he did in the past when Solomon's temple was built because when Solomon's temple was first built, that was the high point in Old Testament history. Does it not seem to you like Nothing. And let me say that there is a danger in comparing things now with the past. I uh, was preaching in Kent a few weeks, a few months ago, actually, a few months ago, and uh, it was a big barn of a building. It must have seated, could have seated 600, I reckon. Had a gallery all the way around. On the day I that was there, I reckon that there were about 80 there. So we were rattling around a little bit in this big building. And over coffee, some of the grey tops came to me and told me, we were here in the 50s. It was full, this building in the 50s, you know. We had a thriving afternoon Sunday school back in the 60s. We had 300 come to Sunday school. And there was just a sense in the tone that those were the good old days. Have you noticed that some people's pastime is past time? Looking back to the past and thinking, well, that was, that, we, we, that was when it was really good. And I thought, how discouraging for the church family who are working their socks off now. Just a different era. I remember when I was converted nearly 40 years ago, I remember that I went to a youth group and there were 100 in the youth group. My wife and I lead a youth group now and there's 20 in it. The danger is to look back to how things were in a previous generation and make a comparison, and that become very debilitating, to be very discouraging, to think it's not really worth doing. Some people's pastime is pastime. I read an article in the newspaper a few weeks ago as making a comment on the fact that Saturday evening BBC2, Dad's Army is on. Dad's Army is on on BBC2, 45 years after it was first made. 45 years! And the uh, writer was saying they don't make sitcoms like they used to. Well, how discouraging for anyone writing a sitcom now! (laughs) Things aren't as good as they used to be. And the danger is if you allow yourself or allow people to tell you how things were in the past, you may become discouraged when it's not as good in the present. My eldest goes to a sixth form college where there are 5,000 A-level students and plus all the Tech students too. It is an enormous place. At the Christian Union on Thursday he told me there were 16 of them. 16 out of 5,000! That's much less than the Christian Union I went to at school of a school of only 1,000. And because I was preparing this, I decided not to tell him how things were in the past. I don't want to discourage him. I think it's just a different era. In fact, I think it's a harder era for our kids to grow up in and stand as Christians. I'm rejoicing that he's standing as a Christian in a CU of 16, in a college of 5,000 plus. I'm rejoicing at that. And I'm not going to discourage him by telling him that things were better in the good old days. It's not the good old days. It's just the different days. Different days. And so the people need to be reassured. So secondly, notice a strengthening presence. So the contrast to looking back with discouragement is, but now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people. Notice all the three groups are being highlighted and told the same thing. Be strong. And being strong is meant to lead them to do what? Work. And here's the reason to do it. For I am with you. What we saw back in chapter 1 is being restated. I am with you. And then notice, it's not looking back that's wrong, it's what you look back to. So verse 5, look back to the right thing. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains among you, do not fear. When they return from exile, things were not as good as they had been. When they return from exile, things were not as they thought God had promised them. So when they return from exile, the danger is they think that somehow God is not with them, or He's not as with them as He was in a previous generation. But here's the promise. I am with you, whatever the work feels like at the moment, and you can be sure I'm with you because I covenanted to do it. I made a promise to you back at Mount Sinai. Sometimes in our generation, it will seem like the work of temple building is slow, difficult, and not compared to a previous generation. Do not think that means that God is not with us. I am with you. And he's covenanted to be with us. Now, we don't look back to coming out of slavery in Egypt and coming to Mount Sinai, do we? To be sure that God is with us. We look back to the death and resurrection of Jesus. (coughs) And where Jesus promises his disciples at the end of Matthew 28, I am with you to the end of the age. Now, that's a cast iron guarantee. It's a dead cert promise. I am with you. So you put on some evangelistic events. Your friends say no to the invitation. Not as many people come as you wanted. And fewer say that they want to investigate than you'd planned for. Do you slash your wrists then, spiritually speaking? Do you give up? Do you stop work? We don't, because I am with you, and I've promised, absolutely I'm with you. I am with you, therefore, you can work verse uh, verse 4 back the other way. I am with you, therefore, be strong and work, and stick at it, even if the results are not as good as they used to be. It is a great encouragement, isn't it, that the results are not in our hands. Because if they were, we might be discouraged. Now, the reason we stick at the work is not because of the results. The reason we stick at the work is because God has called us to it and he's promised it to be with us. He's covenanted to be with us. Look back to the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is the absolute assurance that I am with you. Look back to that. And then look forward to a certain future. That's what the Lord now says in verses 6 to 9. A certain future. Notice, a universal people established. I think that's what verse 6 and 7 is about. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory. That little phrase, once more, I will shake the heavens and the earth, well, it tells us what? He's done it before. And where is the great occasion where God has shaken the heavens and the earth? When was there a great earthquake, would be another way to translate it. When was there a great earthquake? When Israel came to Mount Sinai, where the law was given, God shook the earth. And it was there, verse 5, that he established Israel as his covenant people. But in a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth. I'll do another shaking. And then what will happen? All nations, the desired of all nations, will come. A universal covenant people will be established. Fulfilling the promise that was made to Abraham. You remember the promise made to Abraham right at the start in Genesis 12. Through you I will bless all nations. Here that promise is being restated. It still lies in the future as Haggai speaks. In a little while. I will do it. A universal people will be established. I will shake all nations and the desired of all nations will come. The desired of all nations? Well, if you know uh, Charles Wesley, uh, Charles Wesley understood that in one particular way. Um, you know that when we sing Wesley hymns, you, know, you do know that we only ever sing the edited versions of them, don't you? You know that there are many more verses to the Wesley hymns than we ever get to sing. And, and can it be? You know, we get it down to four. There's loads more verses uh, that you could sing if you wanted to. And Hark the Herald Angels Sing has got more verses than the two that we normally sing at Christmas. In the another verse that we don't normally sing, it begins, "Come, desired of nations, come." He's borrowed the line here from Haggai, chapter two and verse seven. "Come, desired of nations, come," and he's meaning Jesus return. And it could be that, except that little word "desired" in the Hebrew is in the plural. And if you've got an ESV open in front of you, I'm almost sure it will say the treasures of the nations will come. And almost certainly it's not a reference to Jesus, but it's a reference to all the people that God has who are in all the nations. The treasures of the nations will come. God is going to establish a universal people. Well, when do you think that promise finds its fulfilment? Well, isn't it interesting? Do you remember in Matthew's account of the death of Jesus as an earthquake? And how the command is to go to all nations, which sees the beginning of its fulfillment at the day of Pentecost, where Luke tells us in Acts 2.5 that people from every nation under heaven were gathered in Jerusalem. And the Spirit comes on, on all of those at that moment. I think that promise starts to find its fulfilment at the death, resurrection, ascension and the coming of the Spirit. But has it been fulfilled? Well, yes, it has and is being fulfilled now because we are from all nations. We're certainly from the ends of the earth. You do know the left which is the ends of the earth, don't you? I mean that politely. If you get one of those oblong maps and you put a pin in Jerusalem and you draw a line kind of up to Leftwich, and keep drawing the line, there's a bit of Scotland, and then you're off the top of the map, aren't you? You are pretty well, the, when you've gone dr- directly from Jerusalem to Leftwich. there's not much more left before, you are near the ends of the earth. That we are in is the part of the fulfillment of this promise. The desired of all nations will come, the treasures of all nations, that's us. But, But Hebrews chapter 12 quotes verse 7 and says it's still to be fulfilled. Fulfilled at the return of Jesus, the earthquake, and the treasures or the desired of all nations coming. Because, yes, it starts at the cross and Pentecost, it's happening now, but it will finally be fulfilled when we from every nation, tribe, and tongue are gathered around the throne singing, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Has it been fulfilled? Yes. Is it being fulfilled? Yes. Will it be fulfilled? Yes. we can that kind of waiting. A universal people established, a glorious temple finished. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. By which he doesn't mean this physical second temple in Jerusalem, which it itself was destroyed in 168 BC, and they built a third temple, the one Jesus goes into, and that is destroyed. The temple that is glory is us. It started to be fulfilled as we come to Jesus. It will be fulfilled on the last day when the Lord will dwell amongst us and we will see him face to face. And it will be a peaceful home. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Do we experience peace now? Again, as a result of the coming of Jesus, there's a sense, in, a real sense in which we do. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God, Romans 5.1. Which is a remarkable thing, isn't it? You and I are at shalom with the creator of the universe. And peace is really is shalom, it doesn't mean the cessation of hostilities. It means, more positively, the bringing of real friendship, right relationship. We are at shalom with the living God. Is that not a remarkable thing? We're called to be at shalom with one another. We're called to be at peace with one another. But we're not very good at pulling that off because of our sinful nature. And so although I'm sure that you are the best church family short of glory itself, I am sure that you don't always enjoy perfect shalom amongst you. <coughs> little niggles, little crossnesses. And we certainly don't live in a world of shalom, do we? You just need to read one newspaper to know that. It's one of those extraordinary things, isn't it? The biggest misnamer, the biggest oxymoron I know, the United Nations. It is an oxymoron, isn't it? Because the one thing the nations aren't as united. There's wars all over the place, conflicts in every continent. But there will be a time of shalom, grant peace. I was uh, speaking in Jersey a couple of weeks ago And the host of where I was told me that he'd gone on holiday for two weeks uh, from Jersey. And when he got back, they realised they'd left their front door unlocked for the two weeks. And nobody nobody had been in. He said, there's no crime in Jersey. They're all so rich they don't need to steal it from anyone else. There's no crime in Jersey. Very little. I wouldn't do that in Leyland where I live. We had the policewoman come round uh, last Sunday. She went round the whole estate and she said... This is a very nice estate, but there's been a lot of theft on this estate recently, particularly people breaking into cut through car windows when they've seen stuff on the seats in the car and they're nicking it. And apparently, two doors down, they'd let, he'd left a camera on the back seat, window broken, stuff gone. We're not at Shalom yet, are we? Well, there's a sense in which we are, but there's a sense in which we aren't. And here's the big, the big point. They've returned from exile, and the things that God has promised for the return from exile are not all experienced. And what Haggai is saying, don't, don't be downcast, I am going to do it. The Lord will do what he's promised. He will bless all nations. He will be, inhabit his people in, with glory, and he will bring about peace, but it lies in the future. So stick at the work. And here's the great perspective. Look back. Look back rightly. And that will encourage you. And look forward rightly and that will encourage you. God is completely committed to what he has promised. And we are in an even better position than the people of the 6th century BC. Because of the coming of Jesus, we've seen how the beginnings of these promises and their fulfillment has taken place. So we're just waiting for the last bit. So how much more encouraged should we be to stick at the work God has given us? I don't know whether you know that in America now, they're no longer using rats in scientific experiments. They're using lawyers instead. Now, there are two reasons for this. First, have we got a lawyer here? Oh, good. There are two reasons for this. First, because there are more lawyers than rats in America. And secondly, because there are some things rats won't do. Have you ever seen those scientific experiments where a maze has been constructed and there's a lump of cheese at the centre of the maze and the rat's put into the maze. And it's got to find its way, you know, wiggling this way, turning around, going back. It's got to find its way to the reward of the cheese at the centre of the maze. Some people go through life as if it's a maze. You know, they go in this direction and they change and go in that direction. Then they change and go in that direction. and they change and go in that direction. And they keep changing directly. We're not like that in the Christian life. Because God has told us where everything is heading. It's one of the blessings that Paul mentions in Ephesians 1, where he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And the fourth of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ in Ephesians 1 is he has revealed to us the mystery of his will. He has told us where everything in human history is going. It is to the ultimate fulfilment of verses 6 to 9. That's where all of human history is going. And if God's taking human history in that direction, doesn't it make sense to order our priorities, our church priorities too, doesn't it make sense to order them in the same direction where God's going? It would be pushing in any different direction, would be like a rat in a maze. We know where all of human history is going. In Ephesians 1 terms, it's to bring everything under the rule of King Jesus. So if that's where God's taking everything, doesn't it make sense to order our lives under the rule of King Jesus? Doesn't it make sense to order our church life under the rule of King Jesus? Doesn't it make sense to call on others to bring their lives under the rule of King Jesus? That's where everything's going. And ultimately, that's what verses 6 to 9 is about, a universal people. A glorious place, a peaceful home, that's ultimately under the rule of King Jesus. And sometimes having this future perspective is what we need. I think it's difficult for us sometimes to have that perspective of where God is taking all of human history. <coughs> because we, need to, we, we know it only through the revelation in God's word. As I live in this world, my five senses are how I experience things. My sight and my hearing and my touch and my uh, taste and my smell, my five senses are how I gain information about what is in this world. But those five senses only tell me about what is now in this world. None of my five senses can tell me about the future Only a word from outside that God has brought to us here. For example, in Haggai 2, God has told us where all things are heading. My senses don't experience that place now. I can't experience glory now. And so I need to be reminded of the perspective from God's word. This is where God is taking everything. A certain future. And we need that eternal perspective. I don't know whether you know the story of the student who wrote home before texts. And he wrote home at the end of the first term at university. And his letter home went like this. Dear mum and dad, I'm sorry I haven't written home all term. It's been pretty eventful. In the second week, our student res was uh, caught by fire. And I only escaped by jumping from the third-storey window. I consider it fortunate to have got away with only breaking both legs and my pelvis. I was in hospital for a number of weeks. However, I was well looked after by a good team of nurses, by one nurse in particular. Dear Mum and Dad, last Saturday we got married. I don't think you need be disturbed by the decades difference in our age, the difference in our skin color, the difference in our language, I think we will be very happy indeed. Dear Mum and dad, please don't be alarmed by anything I've written, none of it's true. The truth is, I've just found out I failed my first term exams. I just wanted you to get things into perspective. (laughs) And that's what Haggai is wanting or the Lord through Haggai is wanting the people to do here. Get things into perspective. Get things into perspective. Look back, I have promised to be with you. I am with you. <coughs> so take courage, don't be afraid. Take courage and work. And this is where I'm going. This is the future perspective. This is where everything is heading. What I've promised, I will do. So be at work. Stick at the task. Don't have wrong priorities and let that stop us. And don't don't, uh, be stopped by looking back to a wrong past, by making a comparison with a previous generation. No, look back. I've promised to be with you. Look forward, this is where we're going. So be courageous, be strong, and work. Well, I've left a little more time this time. There's some questions there. Why don't you spend some time back in those kind of groups, or different groups if you'd like. And I've just jotted three questions uh, down there for you. They won't take you all the way through to lunch. Why Why don't we aim to be praying, say at five to one? Have we got another song or not? We have. Why don't we be able to pray at seven minutes to one, and then we've got t- time to pray for five minutes, and then two minutes to sing our final song. Okay, let's go.